From the New York Institute for the Humanities, I'm Eric Banks. On today's bonus episode, we hear again from Philip Dre, the author of The Fair Chase, the epic story of hunting in America. When I spoke with Dre, I asked if he would share one of his favorite but less remembered pieces from hunting literature. He chose Charles Dudley Warner's 1888 short story, The Hunting of the Deer. There was a man in the 19th century named Charles Dudley Warner. This was an article he wrote. I believe it appeared in the Atlantic Monthly. Uh, It was called A Hunting of the Deer. And it was a very interesting piece, and he noted this himself when he presented it, that no one had ever written a hunting story from the perspective of the deer. So this is Charles Dudley Warner. This appeared in a magazine. Imagine picking this up, you're riding in your carriage or whatever it is, wherever people read magazines in those days. Early on the morning of the 23rd of August, 1877, a doe was feeding on Basin Mountain. This is set in the Adirondacks, by the way. The night had been warm and showery, and the morning opened in an undecided way. The wind was southerly. It is what the deer call a dog wind, having come to know quite well the meaning of a southerly wind and a cloudy sky. The sole companion of the doe was her only child, a charming little fawn, whose brown coat was just beginning to be mottled with the beautiful spots which make this young creature as lovely as the gazelle. The doe was feeding, daintily cropping the tender leaves of the young shoots and turning from time to time to regard her offspring. The fawn had taken his morning meal and now lay curled up on a bed of moss, watching contentedly with his large, soft brown eyes every movement of his mother. The great eyes followed her with an alert entreaty, and if the mother stepped a pace or two farther away in feeding, the fawn made a half-movement as if to rise and follow her. You see, she was his sole dependence in all the world. But he was quickly reassured when she turned her gaze on him, and if in alarm he uttered a plaintive cry, she bounded to him at once and with every demonstration of affection licked his mottled skin till it shone again. It was a pretty picture, maternal love on the one part and happy trust on the other. The doe lifted her head a little with a quick motion and turned her ear to the south. Had she heard something? Probably it was only the south winds and the balsams. There was silence all about in the forest. If the doe had heard anything, it was one of the distant noises of the world. There are in the woods occasional moanings, premonitions of change, which are inaudible to the dull ears of men, but which, I have no doubt, the forest folk hear and understand. If the doe's suspicions were excited for an instant, they were gone as soon. With an affectionate glance at her fawn, she continued picking up her breakfast. But suddenly she started, head erect, eyes dilated, a tremor in her limbs. She took a step. She turned her head to the south. She listened intently. There was a sound, a distant, prolonged note, bell tone, pervading the woods, shaking the air in smooth vibrations. It was repeated. The doe had no doubt now. She shook like the sensitive mimosa when a footstep approaches. It was the baying of a hound. It was far off at the foot of the mountain. Time enough to fly. Time enough to put miles between her and the hound before he should come upon her fresh trail. Time enough to escape away through the dense forest and hide in the recesses of Panther Gorge. Yes, time enough. But there was the fawn. The cry of the hound was repeated, more distinct this time. The mother instinctively bounded away a few paces. The fawn started up with an anxious bleat. The doe turned. She came back. She couldn't leave it. She bent over and licked it and seemed to say, Come, my child, we are pursued. We must go. By all the means at her command, the doe urged her young one on, but it was slow work. Whenever the fawn cut up, he was quite content to frisk about. He wanted more breakfast, for one thing, and his mother wouldn't stand still. Shortly came a sound that threw the doe into a panic of terror, a short, sharp yelp followed by a prolonged howl. 
caught up and re-echoed by other bayings along the mountainside. The doe knew what that meant. One hound had caught her trail, and the whole pack responded. The danger was certain now. It was near. She could not crawl on in this way. The dogs would soon be upon them. She turned again for flight. The fawn, scrambling after her, tumbled over and bleated piteously. The bang, now emphasized by the yelp of certainty, came nearer. Flight with the fawn was impossible. The doe returned and stood by it, head erect, nostrils distended. She stood perfectly still, but trembling. Perhaps she was thinking. The fawn took advantage of the situation and began to draw his luncheon ration. The doe seemed to have made up her mind. She let him finish. The fawn, having taken all he wanted, lay down contentedly, and the doe licked him for a moment. Then, with the swiftness of a bird, she dashed away, and a moment was lost in the forest. She went in the direction of the hounds. She descended the slope of the mountain until she reached the more open forest of hardwood. It was freer going here, and the cry of the pack echoed more resoundingly in the great spaces. In five minutes more, she heard the sharp, exultant yelp of discovery, and then the deep-mouthed howl of pursuit. The hounds had struck her trail where she turned, and the fawn was safe. The doe was in good running condition, the ground was not bad, and she felt the exhilaration of the chase. For the moment, fear left her, and she bounded on with the exultation of triumph. For a quarter of an hour, she went on at a slapping pace, clearing the moose bushes with bound after bound, flying over the fallen logs, pausing neither for brook or ravine. The baying of the hounds grew fainter behind her, but she struck a bad piece of going, a dead wood slash. It was marvelous to see her skim over it, leaping among its intricacies and not breaking her slender legs. No other living animal could do it, but it was killing work. She began to pant fearfully. She lost ground. The baying of the hounds was nearer. She climbed the hardwood hill at a slower gait, but once on more level, free ground, her breath came back to her, and she stretched away with new courage and maybe a sort of contempt of her heavy pursuers. After running at a high speed, perhaps half a mile further, it occurred to her that it would be safe now to turn to the west and by a wide circuit see her fawn. But at the moment, she heard a sound that chilled her heart. It was the cry of a hound to the west of her. The crafty brute had made the circuit of the slash and cut off her retreat. There was nothing to do but to keep on, and on she went, still to the north, with the noise of the pack behind her. In five minutes more, she had passed into a hillside clearing. Cows and young steers were grazing there. She heard a tinkle of bells. Below her, down the mountain slope, were other clearings, broken by patches of woods. Fences intervened, and a mile or two down lay the valley and the peaceful farmhouses. That way also her, her hereditary enemies were. Not a merciful heart in all that lovely valley. She hesitated. It was only for an instant. She must cross the Slidebrook Valley, if possible, and gain the mountain opposite. She bounded on. She stopped. What was that? From the valley ahead came the cry of a searching hound. All the devils were loose this morning. Every way was closed but one, and that led straight down the mountain to the cluster of houses. Conspicuous among them was a slender white wooden spire. The doe did not know it was the spire of a Christian chapel, but perhaps she thought that human pity dwelt there and would be more merciful than the teeth of the hounds. In a panic, frightened animals will always flee to humankind from the danger of more savage foes. They always make a mistake in doing so. Perhaps the trait is the survival of an era of peace on earth. Perhaps it is a prophecy of the golden age of the future. The doe went on. She left the sawmill on John's Brook to her right. She turned into a wood path. As she approached Slide Book, she saw a boy standing by a tree with a raised rifle. 
The dogs were not in sight, but she could hear them coming down the hill. There was no time for hesitation. With her tremendous burst of speed, she cleared the stream, and as she touched the bank, heard the ping of a rifle bullet in the air above her. The cruel sound gave wings to the poor thing. In a moment more, she was in the opening. She leaped into the traveled road. Which way? Below her in the wood was a load of hay. A man and a boy with pitchforks in their hands were running towards her. She turned south and flew along the street. The town was up. Women and children ran to the doors and windows. Men snatched their rifles. Shots were fired. At the big boarding houses, the summer boarders who never have anything to do came out and cheered. The courage of the panting fugitive was not gone. She was game to the tip of her high-bred ears, but the fearful pace at which she had just been going told on her. Her legs trembled and her heart beat like a trip hammer. She slowed her speed perforce, but still fled industriously up the right bank of the stream. When she had gone a couple of miles and the dogs were evidently gaining again, she crossed the broad, deep brook, climbed the steep left bank, and fled on the direction of the Mount Marcy Trail. The fording of the river threw the hounds off for a time. She knew by their uncertain yelping up and down the opposite bank that she had a little respite. She used it, however, to push on until the baying was faint in her ears, and then she dropped, exhausted, upon the ground. This rest, brief as it was, saved her life. Roused again by the baying pack, she leaped forward with better speed, though without that keen feeling of exhilarating flight that she had in the morning. It was still a race for life, but the odds were in her favor, she thought. She was a little confused in her mind where to go, but an instinct kept her course to the left and consequently further away from the fawn. I do not know her exact course through this maze of mountains, swamps, ravines, and frightful wilderness. I only know that the poor thing worked her way along painfully with sinking heart and unsteady limbs, spurred on by the cry of the remorseless dogs, until late in the afternoon she staggered down the shoulder of Bartlett and stood upon the shore of the lake. If she could put that piece of water between her and her pursuers, she would be safe. Had she strength to swim it? At her first step into the water, she saw a sight that sent her back with a bound. There was a boat mid-lake. Two men were in it. One was rowing. The other had a gun in his hand. They were looking towards her. They had seen her. What should she do? The hounds were drawing near. No escape that way, even if she could still run. With only a moment's hesitation, she plunged into the lake and struck obliquely across. Her tired legs could not propel the tired body rapidly. She saw the boat headed for her. She turned toward the center of the lake. The boat turned. She could hear the rattle of the oarlocks. It was gaining on her. The brave, pretty creature was quite exhausted now. In a moment more, with a rush of water, the boat was on her, and the man at the oars had leaned over and caught her by the tail. Knock her on the head with that paddle, he shouted to the gentleman in the stern. The gentleman was a gentleman, with a kind, smooth-shaven face, and might have been a minister of some sort of everlasting gospel. He took the paddle in his hand. Just then the doe turned her head and looked at him with her great appealing eyes. I can't do it, my soul, I can't do it, said he, and dropped the paddle. Oh, let her go. Let thunder go, was the only response of the guide as he slung the deer round, whipped out his hunting knife, and made a pass that severed her jugular. And the gentleman ate that night of the venison. And that was Philip Dre reading from Charles Dudley Warner's A Hunting of the Deer from 1888. And thank you so much for that. And thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This podcast has been brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU in conjunction with the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. 
Our producers are Annika Kaundinya and Ben Branstein. Our thanks to Uli Bear and for their technical and design acumen, Aaron Dowdy and Selena Lacazzi. For more information, or if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at, and this is one word, nyihumanities.org. Again, that's nyihumanities.org.